15, 16 months old. I, I don't, I'm not good at math, but, um, which means I've been a lead pastor for 15 or 16 months. And uh, our elders slipped away this past weekend um, just to kind of reflect on the last year and to pray for you and to pray for our church. And um, one of the things that really stood out to me as I reflected over the last 15 or 16 months for myself are, are two things. One, that the darkness and the depravity of sin is so deep uh, in all of our lives, in my life, in our family's lives, in our, in our marriages, but His mercy is so much more. One of the things that I've learned this year is just how bottomless His grace is. So I just want to encourage you, and, and our text will encourage us as well, but if you're coming in this morning uh, in need of grace, welcome. Uh, you're in the right spot because we are all in that same boat. So um, welcome. So if you will, go ahead and have a seat for me this morning. Um, we'll dismiss our kids. Looks like we've got a lot of them as well, again. Um, but hey, um, if you're new with us, uh, maybe you missed last week. Um, some of this will be uh, review, but um, beginning in 2024, I made a few announcements last week, just as we we're going into a new year. One of those announcements uh, has to do with us making some more space. So if you're new with us and you're like, oh my goodness, this is really tight in here, you should see over there where the kids are, okay? It is really tight. So in February, we're going to be able to make a little bit more space. Um, but I also want to make an, a new announcement or at least update you on something else this morning, specifically regarding our uh, CBC Kids Ministry. Um, before I make that announcement, I wanted to take an opportunity to make sure that we're all on the same page about what CBC Kids is and what CBC Kids is not. You know, my fear is that, that we believe that kids ministry at a church is a substitute for your responsibility to disciple your kids. Um, CBC Kids exists to supplement the discipleship of your children, not to substitute for the discipleship of your children. Does that make sense? Um, and, it's, and it's hard because um, I have 15 years of disciple-making experience. I've got a seminary degree. But when it comes to the discipleship of my children, y'all, there is not an area of my life where I feel more insecure or incompetent uh, or, or shame-ridden, guilt-ridden, fear, anxiety, like you name it. Like it, it stirs so much up in me because like I have a vision of how I want it to go. Like we're sitting around the dinner table and, and we're going to read the King James Version and we're going to like have this discipleship moment and then inevitably I end up yelling at my middle children. Because they're not paying attention. Nobody's listening. And I'm like, God, I failed again. And y'all, if you're familiar with that experience, can I just encourage you that um, that's, that is actually the gospel? Like that is actually discipleship is, is failing and going, you know what? I lost my temper there. Will you forgive me? Like I'm still in process. Like we, I need grace just the same way that you need grace. But that is what family discipleship is. And we as a church want to equip you as our parents to disciple your children. That's Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And one of the easiest ways that we can equip our parents for the work of discipleship of their home is, is here on Sunday mornings. By offering a safe environment where your kids are building healthy relationships with one another and with teachers and getting a constant gospel drip Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. So that, hopefully, you can come in here and, and be undistracted. And hear from the word of God and, and be grown yourself and grow in your own discipleship so that you can take home what you are becoming as, as you be the church within your own home. Does that make sense? So we want our kids' ministry to supplement you, not to be a substitute for you. But if you were here last week, I made the comment that on any given Sunday, we can have 130 to 160 fifth grade or younger kids, right? 
what I didn't know is that while I was saying that, we actually had 191 kids last Sunday, which is baffling, okay? So what that means is that we need help. Uh, we need someone that can lead and someone that can support the supplementing ministry of CBC Kids. And I want to uh, inform you today that we have officially hired a full-time CBC Kids director, and her name is Jennifer Daniels. So I'm going to ask Jennifer and her husband to come on up. And, and so many of you are like, wait, what? I thought she was already hired. No, she has been working 40-hour weeks as a volunteer um, since Easter. So Jennifer brings two decades worth of kids' ministry. Um, she and Dave are a real gift to our church. It's just been a real God thing to bring them uh, here with us. But beginning in February, she will be officially, God bless her, a part of our church staff. Okay. Um, so they're going to be out in the foyer. If you're a parent, I would encourage you just to um, meet them if you haven't already. Um, She's going to be in the nursery because apparently there's more babies there today. So she's going to be helping in the nursery. Um, but meet them, say hey to them, um, pray for them. Uh, our prayer is that God would really use her to, to, to establish the work of her hands in the supplemental discipleship of our kids, uh, which I contribute a large number of those kids to this church. Okay? So I'm going to pray for them, uh, and I'm going to pray us into our text this morning. Um, Father, we're so grateful. So grateful for what you're doing in this community of Richmond Hill. We know that even as the city tags this city as the playful city, that families are moving into this community, which gives us a unique opportunity to, to uh, partner with you in the reaching of these children. I'm grateful that we worship a God that doesn't tolerate kids, that isn't frustrated or annoyed by the potential distraction of kids, but a, but a God who said, let the children come to me. And we as your church, we want to partner with you, God. We want to follow that invitation of allowing the church to feel, uh, the kids to feel safe, welcome, loved, and ultimately we want them to hear your truth. We want them to know you, God. So I pray that you would lead Jennifer as she leads this area of our ministry, um, that you would lead the teachers even now as they're loving these kids, playing with these kids, building relationships with these kids. May they hear your word. May they be transformed more and more to your image. But God, even more importantly, will you use this hour to equip these parents, equip me. God, I'm in such need of your grace and discipleship for my children. Um, the reality is, God, if I and if we don't disciple our kids, the world is going to, the world is. So I pray that you would allow us, by your grace, to step into the calling that you have placed on us as parents, not with shame, not with guilt, not with fear, but with the encouragement that is found in Christ. So help us establish the work of our hands. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all. All right. Well, hey, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Okay, Philippians chapter 1. Um, if you missed last week, we began a new series in the book of Philippians where I was able to kind of share a little bit of the context of the book as well as uh, to frame uh, its relevance for us today. So if you missed last week, I want to encourage you. It's online. It's on our website. I think we have it on Spotify. Um, but today we're going to really get into the heart of this incredible letter from the Apostle Paul. Um, but Philippians chapter 1 is where we are. We're going to be reading verses 3 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, um, please read along with me. If you don't have a Bible, let me just go ahead and say this. There are some out there. Uh, take one. Take it home with you. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word of God in your hands. We want it in your head. We want it in your heart. Okay, so Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart 
For you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. With knowledge and all discernment, so you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. In J.R.R. Tolkien's series, The Lord of the Rings, um, there, are, there are so many parallels to the Christian journey, right? If you have read those books or to your own f- shame, only watch the movies, okay? You're, you're probably aware of the similarities between the journey that those movies, those books present and the journey that there is in the Christian faith, okay? There's so many similarities. I, I'm going to highlight one of, for you today. Um, it's one that's easily missed. And it's actually in the form of a song. In the books, these songs appear three times, in the movies only twice, and they're very much in the background. Um, But the first time the song appears is when Bilbo, you know, the famed hobbit, and I'm so sorry, if you don't know what I'm talking about, please forgive me, okay? But in the first song, Bilbo, the famed hobbit, is beginning his journey to the heavenly city of Rivendell, okay? And I'm emphasizing beginning. He's beginning this journey, and this is what he sings. I'll put the lyrics on the screen for us. It says, the road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone, and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with eager feet until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet, and whither then I cannot say. It's a beautiful piece of poetry. Let me unpack it, okay? So so Bilbo is beginning a journey. What he's singing about, he's on this road that, that he must travel, and he's launching into this journey with eager feet, right? Eager feet. He's excited for this journey, and he doesn't yet know what awaits him at the end of this journey, but nonetheless, he's excited. There's just an eagerness to this journey, but much later in the story, Bilbo sings the same song, but he just changes the lyrics just a little bit, and this time, he's at the end of his journey. He's officially made it to the city of Rivendell, and he's reflecting back on his journey, and this is what he sings, okay? He says, the road goes ever on and on, out from the door where it began. Okay, same verse. Now far ahead the road has gone. Now let others follow it who can. Let them a new journey begin. But I at last with weary feet will turn towards the lighted end, my evening rest and sleep to meet. Man, what a beautiful piece of poetry. Right, so at the end of his journey, he has arrived at his destination with weary feet. A lighted in, a place where he's going to get to see Jesus face to face, a, a place where he's going to find eternal rest and eternal security. It's where he f- will find eternal salvation. But when he began, right, he was eager. He didn't know what awaited him. He was eager. But when he ends, he, he, he's weary, and officially he's going to find some eternal rest. The point that I want to make for you this morning, and the point that I think the text is going to make for us, is that the Christian life is largely lived in between these two descriptions of feet, eager and weary. The Christian life has a, has a definite beginning where your road continues, but yet this road, y'all, be warned, it goes ever on and on. But if you can remember back to the day of your salvation, remember when your relationship with Jesus first got to a start, when you first began it, weren't you eager? Like, wasn't there just this excitement? I call it new believer grace. It's like you're just, you wake up so early to read and pray, and you're, you're going to church, and you're tithing. Some of you got so saved, you started driving the speed limit, which is way too far, you know? But you know what I mean? It's just this eagerness to just do what Jesus wants you to do. But listen, if that's you, if you're in that season, I'm so grateful for you. 
But be warned, this road is long. It goes ever on and on. But one day it'll come to an end. One day it'll be completed. This journey will be completed. In that day, you'll see Jesus face to face. You'll, you'll have eternal rest. You'll have eternal security. But the Christian life, the here and now, is lived largely between the beginning and between the end. And as I read this text, I, I can picture Paul. Remember, Paul is writing the letter to the Philippians from a Roman prison. Right? He is in prison. He's awaiting a verdict of, of whether he's going to be killed or whether his journey will continue, whether he's going to step into that lighted end or whether his journey is going to continue. And as he's reflecting on his journey up to that point, he begins to think about people that have crossed his path. Because remember what Bilbo's saying. I'm pursuing this journey with eager feet until it joins some larger way. This is a large path. Like so many people, you're going to meet so many brothers and sisters on this journey with you together. It goes on to say, where many paths and errands meet. And Paul has been journeying on this Christian journey for so long, and he's sitting in prison, and he's reflecting on all the people that he's crossed paths with, and, and across his mind comes the church in Philippi. How I remember, 10 years prior, in the year 51 AD, he first met this church. He first saw this church, Lydia and the Philippian jailer and the, the old demonized slave girl. And as he's sitting and he's reflecting on the church in Philippi, there's two things that he does in our text. The first is he begins to praise God. As he sits in jail and he thinks about his journey and he thinks about those he's passed on this journey, he begins to praise God. He just pours forth praise for this church, for all that God has done in them and all that God has done through them. And then when you get to verse 9, he does the second thing. He begins to pray. Not only is he praising God for the journey thus far, he begins to pray. He prays that they would continue on this journey, that they would live this road that goes ever on and on with progress. They would journey well until they meet their end. So that's our outline for today, okay? Paul's praise and Paul's prayer. So let's begin with Paul's praise. Praise is the joyful recounting of all that God has done. Praise oftentimes can be a spontaneous response to an encounter with your God. So let me give you a few scriptural examples, okay? We, we walked through the series in Advent, and um, you remember how Mary all of a sudden bursts forth in song. She began to magnify and praise God because of what God had done in the, su the supplying of Christ into her womb. Mary praised the Lord spontaneously because of her encounter with God. Let me give you another one. The shepherds. After they had seen Jesus in the manger, they went back to their fields and they began to praise God for all that they had seen and all that they had heard. Praising God is a recounting of all God has done, all you've seen God do, all that you've heard God do. Church, praise is in our future. When we step into that lighted end, your first response will be praise. In Revelation, we see the multitude of every nation, every tribe and language standing before God, seeing him face to face, and they fall on their faces and they cry out, praise and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power be to our God forever and ever. When you meet God, when you encounter God, when you grow in your knowledge of God, what happens is you begin to praise. You thank him for all that he's done. And the first thing that Paul does in his praise is he does it with joy. I want you to note that Paul's praise, his recounting of all that God has done, is done with joy. Look with me at verse 3. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul's praise for God, his thanksgiving to God is done with joy. And remember, this is significant because where is Paul? In prison waiting to find out if he's going to live, waiting to find out if he's going to die. And we're going to revisit this concept of joy throughout the book of Philippians, but will you just please note that joy has nothing to do with circumstances? It is uncircumstantial. Rome
Rome and Philippi as a Roman colony had everything that your flesh wanted. It was a place full of self-indulgence, comfort, and security. Yet Paul was sitting in prison void of everything that the world has to offer, and yet he's praising God with joy. Church, joy has nothing to do with, with your job. Joy has nothing to do with your income, your, your family, your health, your wealth, in anything. Joy is uncircumstantial. Kent Hughes, a commentator on the book of Philippians, writes this. He says, the secret to joy is keeping things in their proper order. And then he gives an incredible cliche of an acrostic. He says, Jesus, others, and yourself. You want to experience biblical joy, you've got to keep these priorities in order. Paul sitting in prison had no circumstances, right? There's no C in the word joy. Circumstances are not a part of joy. Paul sitting in a Roman prison, and he is thinking about all that Jesus has done in his life. He's thinking about all that Jesus has done in the church of Philippi. He is focused on Jesus. And then he begins to think about the Philippian church and who they are and how they've progressed on this road. And all of a sudden, he's not even thinking about himself. He's praising God because praise with joy comes from keeping our priorities in order. But what was Paul praising God for specifically? You know, this is just an old Bible study trick, but often what you want to do if you have a question in Scripture is let Scripture answer questions about Scripture. Okay, so, so Paul's praising God for joy. Well, why? Why is he praising God? Look at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is joyfully praising God because of this church's partnership in the gospel. That word partnership is the Greek word koinonia. It, it's often translated in the New Testament as fellowship. And that's what he's referencing. He's saying there's a, there's a fellowship here. There's an association that we share. There's a community. There's a joint participation. It's the English word partnership. And the reason that the English translators use the word partnership is because in the Greek, koinonia often referenced a commercial partnership. Meaning if you and I were to go into business with one another, we would enter into a koinonia. We would enter into a partnership. We would agree upon a shared vision, and then you and I would spend our lives in the fulfillment of that vision. That is what a partnership is. That's what fellowship is. That's what a koinonia is. And Paul is joyfully praising God because this church in Philippi had partnered with him in the gospel. There was, a, there was a, an agreement and a shared vision that the gospel is primary. And the Philippian church and Paul both spent their lives in the advancement of the gospel. We're going to see this throughout the book, but, but the Philippian church partnered with Paul in three ways. I'm just going to reference them really quickly. Uh, the first is in their preaching. In 51 AD, the church in Philippi was born with three people, Lydia, the Philippian jailer in his household, and then this little slave girl that we'll reference here in a second, okay? But by 61 AD, which is when Paul is writing this letter, this church has grown. We're going to see some names throughout this book that indicates that this church has grown. And the reason that church has grown is because the Philippian church was willing to share the good news of Jesus Christ with their neighbors, with their friends, and with their community. They were partnered in the preaching of the gospel, okay? It's the first way they partnered. The second way they partnered is in their prayer for the advancement of the gospel. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul's going to actually tell them, I'm confident that I'm going to be released. I'm confident that I'm going to be delivered from this prison. And he says, you know why I'm so confident? Because I know you're praying for me. The Philippian church was praying for Paul. They were partnered in prayer. Third way that the Philippian church partnered is in financial provision. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul writes this, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, which was the region of Philippi, it says no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. What we see in this church from Philippi, y'all, is that they were bought in. 
They were sold out. They were willing to spend and to be spent in this shared vision of the gospel. And when Paul reflects on this church, he begins to praise God because of their partnership. Y'all, they had true Christian fellowship. Paul and this church had true Christian fellowship because true Christian fellowship only comes in gospel partnership. I'm going to say that again. True biblical Christian fellowship only comes from gospel partnership. We have so watered down the word fellowship, right? We've hijacked it. And what we mean by fellowship is like a Wednesday night potluck. And I love potlucks. That's great. I love food. Okay, I like sitting down and having a cup of coffee with you and us catching up. But that's not true biblical fellowship. We can't, we can't confuse biblical fellowship with just catching up over a cup of coffee. No, biblical fellowship, partnership is found in the trenches, not just around the table. It is found when we are working together to advance the gospel of God in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. True gospel partnership, let me give you an example, is found upstairs right now in a three-year-old classroom. All right, so last week we had 191 kids here, which is bananas, okay? 191 kids. There were 14 three-year-old boys in one service, okay? So our teachers are desperate. They just need help. And you know who our teachers have to go to when they need help? Our deacons. So one of our deacons went into the three-year-old classroom, 14 boys. My son's in there, three-year-old boy. I train him to be the next middle linebacker, okay? And that deacon, y'all, he went home exhausted, with weary feet, probably a bit bruised. But all he and the rest of the teachers in that class could talk about all week was this shared fellowship they experienced in the loving and the serving of those kids. That's true biblical partnership. It's when we work together in the advancement of the gospel in our lives and in those around us. True Christian fellowship only found in gospel partnership. That's why Paul was praising God with joy. Second point, though, is that Paul praised God with confidence. Look at verse 6 with me. Paul's praising God with confidence. He says, I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is an often memorized verse, a pretty popular verse, and I want to take a moment to just kind of unpack it. What Paul is saying here is saying, listen, I am sure, I am confident, I am unwavering in my expectation that the good work that God began, God will finish. That reality is enough to pause and praise God for Because what that reality communicates is that the beginning of your journey on this road of the Christian faith was all due to the sovereign working of God. Your salvation can be attributed to the working of God, not to your own work, not to your own merit, not to your own piety, not to your own good merits. It is all attributed to the grace of God. So often we think, well, I chose to follow Jesus. No, you chose to follow Jesus because he in Christ first chose you. He began that good work. And y'all, that is really good news. Because if you didn't choose to follow Jesus, you can't choose to stop following Jesus. If God worked out your salvation, that means you can't lose it. Because it is he who holds it, he who keeps it secure, he who preserves it, he who will see it to completion. God saves. It is by grace alone through faith. And your ability to choose him by faith is a dependent upon his grace. Church, it's God that jumpstarts our journey in Christ. It's God that saves us. 
Let me illustrate that, that theological truth with the Philippian church, okay? The Philippian church is a great example of how the, the beginning of a journey begins with God. So Acts chapter 16, Paul and his, his band of church planters want to go into Asia. They don't want to go to Macedonia. They don't want to go to Philippi. They want to continue to push north in modern-day Turkey, actually up into the region of Bithynia. But what we read in Acts 16 is that the Holy Spirit would not allow them to go into Bithynia. And that night, he's like, well, why can't we go north? And that night, he has a dream of a man from Macedonia, which is where Philippi was, that said, come over here and help us. What I want you to see in that story is that, that, that Paul didn't choose to go to Philippi. God, in his sovereign work, chose for Paul to go to Philippi. All right, so when he gets there, he stumbles upon a Bethmore Bible study down by the river, okay? And they're, they're reading the Bible, and what we read in Acts chapter 16, verse 14 is this. It says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a businesswoman, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And we read that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Who opened her heart? The Lord did. Lydia didn't open her heart. Paul didn't open her heart. It was the sovereign work of God working through the preaching of Paul and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But God opened Lydia's heart. God jump-started the journey of Lydia on this road that goes ever on and on. All right, next day, he goes back to the river, but he's followed by this slave girl. And we read in Acts chapter 16, verse 18, that Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turns and says to the spirit, the demon within this girl, and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Whose name set that girl free? Paul? Paul chose for that demon to come out? That girl chose for that demon to come out? No, it was the powerful name of Christ. It begins and it originates with God. God begins the work of salvation. Well, Paul and Silas get thrown into prison for that miracle act that God worked. And, and an earthquake all of a sudden begins to bust open the prison. The jail cell opens, their chains fall off. The Philippian jailer ends up putting his faith in Christ because of that miracle. Who worked that miracle? God did. It wasn't Paul. It wasn't that Philippian jailer. It was God. Salvation originates and begins with God. He begins this good work. Praise God for the work that he has begun in each of you, in each of us. But what Paul confidently knows, y'all, is if God has begun something, he will sovereignly continue it until completion. He, he will complete it. And what he says, if you look back at verse 6, he says he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Just as there was a, a day of beginning of your faith, there is a fixed date on the Father's calendar where it will, where it will end. It will come to completion. Either you will die and you will see by your own sight what we have been believing by faith. Or he will return. He will return. He knows the day. It is on his calendar. There is an end day where we will all step into that lighted end. And all meet the eternal rest and the eternal security that he has promised. Our weary feet will get to be thrown up and everything that is wrong in this world will be made right. That day is coming. It is a fixed date in the Father's calendar, right? And, and Paul's saying, listen, he who began it is he who is going to complete it. But did you know from the day that he began that work in you to the day that he's going to complete it, he has not taken vacation? He does not sleep, nor does he slumber. He is not weary. He's not like, I need some R&R. What I'm trying to say is that he worked when he began it. He is working in the in-between, and he will officially complete what he started. Y'all, there's encouragement if he who began it, that, that means that he is currently working in you. Paul's saying, I'm confident that the sovereign God who sovereignly saved you is the sovereign God who is going to hold you, keep you, sustain you, and preserve you. The sovereign God who is going to complete it. 
Church, this is reason for confident praise. If you did nothing to gain your salvation, you will do nothing to lose your salvation. As assuredly as he started it, he will assuredly see it to the day of Jesus Christ. But there's going to be more on that here in a moment, okay? So, Paul saying, I praise God joyfully. I praise God confidently. Let me say one more about his praise. Is that this praise is fitting. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Here again, sitting in Roman prison, he is alluding to this deep partnership that they have in the advancement of the gospel. Specifically, he's remembering about their care for him while in prison. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, we read this, that I have received, Paul says, I received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you have sent me. What that means is that the Philippian church cared so much about Paul, they were worried about him in in the Roman prison, that they drew straws and sent one of their church members all the way up to Rome. His name was Epaphroditus. And he brought Paul financial and, and material provision to care for him. And Paul's going, listen, you guys hold a dear place in my heart. And for that reason, I confidently and I joyfully praise God for you. It was fitting. He loved this church. Let's keep going on. That was Paul's praise. Now we get to verse 9. He begins to pray. He says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Don't miss this prayer. He's saying, God began something in you. God's going to complete something in you. But here in the now, in, in the in-between, from the time he started it, from the time he completes it, he says, what I pray for you is that you just keep walking, that you abound more and more, that you grow, that you progress, that you keep walking on this road that ever goes on and on, that you would embrace the fact that you are on a journey. He's praying. He's praying that they would continue. Y'all, this is a prayer of sanctification. How many of you have ever heard that word? Okay, thank you. That was not rhetorical. Sanctification, real churchy word, okay? Churchy word, all that means is that the work that he began in you is the work of conforming you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That the work he started in you, when he gave you a new heart, this is how he started it. He gave you a new heart. The scriptures teach that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, that your heart was black and decaying in sin. And what took place when he began that work in you is called the great exchange. That he sovereignly, by his grace and by his love, took that old heart out of your chest. And in its place, he gave you a new one. And Ephesians chapter 4 says that that new heart is created after the likeness of God. That that new heart is true in righteousness and in holiness. He has now given you a new heart. He has jump-started like a defibrillator to your life. He has jump-started a new life in your life. Does that make sense? He began that work. That's what happened. A great exchange took place. But he began it so that, Romans 6 tells us, you may learn to walk in newness of life. That you would journey on this road. That you would take that new heart and you would learn to play it out day after day after day. Church, can we get real for a second? Is this not a hard journey? It's hard. If you've been a Christ follower for more than a couple of weeks, what you know is that it is hard. Let me give you one reason why this journey in Christ is so hard. Because those old propensities and habits that you had before he jump-started your life, they die hard, don't they? Let me illustrate it in my own life, okay? For 18 years, 
I lived with Andrew McClure as the king of kings of my life. I lived where I did whatever I wanted to do. So my anger, my jealousy, my selfish ambition, my pride, my looking, my cussing, my fighting, anything that I wanted to do, all of that was driven by my old heart. And I lived that way for 18 years. It was like breathing, natural, subconscious. It's part of who I am. But on July 3rd, 2007, defibrillators were put on my chest. Jesus Christ began a good work in me that day. But what happened when I started to learn to walk this journey is that those 18 years of habits and propensities followed me. They did. And we get so confused here because we buy into this faulty theology that once I'm saved, now everything's perfect. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you, perfection awaits me at the lighted end. He began a good work. He gave me a new heart. So now I have some new desires. But as I walk this thing out, sometimes those old desires start pulling me backwards. So I want to go two steps forward. And then my kids do something. And the anger just rises up in me. And I'm two steps back once again. That's the Christian journey. It's this faith. We are in process because he began that good work. What I have to do now is learn how to walk that new life out. But let me encourage you. He began it. He will complete it. That means in the in-between, I don't have to rely on myself to figure this thing out. He didn't leave me to work it out all by myself. He's not like, hey, started it, like, see what you got. He's like, no, I'm going to walk with you every step of the way. I began it. I'm going to see it to completion. This is what Philippians chapter 2 says. We're going to talk about this a lot. But in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, look with me there. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out. Go ahead and circle that. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Go ahead and circle work in. He works it in. He began a good work in you. He's going to continue to work in you. Your responsibility is just to join him in that work and work it out. It's an active partnership between me and God. That's what, the, what it means is laziness cannot be an excuse of mine. When I blow up on my children, I can't go, sorry guys, God just hadn't sanctified me yet. No, it's an active partnership. It's me going, gosh, I need the gospel again. It's me going, kids, I'm sorry. My anger dies hard. I need Jesus. I need him to forgive me. I need you to forgive me. And I need your grace so I continue to work on this path. And then I go to him and I go, God, work your grace in my life. Work your gentleness, your kindness in my life. And then when I sit down for dinner, I try to work it out. You see how that works as an active partnership. This is what sanctification is. He began it. He's going to see it to completion. I just join him in the work that he's already doing in my life. It's called sanctification, y'all. This is what Paul prays. He's going, listen, guys, you're a great church. You're healthy. You're mature. You're partnered with me. But you're still on the road. Your journey is going to continue. And he says, my prayer for you is that you would grow, that you would abound more and more. And look specifically with me in verse 9. Abound in what? Love. Because my prayer is that you would grow in love. Church, love has always been the surefire measure of Christian maturity. Love. Not how many scriptures of Leviticus you have memorized. 
Not the fact that you know all 66 books of the Bible. Not that you have perfect attendance here every Sunday morning. For far too long, we as Christians have measured our maturity based on how much we know. You don't know one of the most mature people in Scripture? Well, we had these guys who thought they were mature. They're called Pharisees. Knew a lot. Had perfect attendance. I actually memorized the entire five first books of the Old Testament, okay? Know a lot more than you and I. And one day, they're grueling this guy about what he had experienced in the person of Christ. And they're saying, you don't know anything. We know everything. And the guy said, listen, you're right. I don't know anything. But you know what he said? All I know is I was blind, and now I see. That man was a man who was mature in Christ because he had an experience with God, and he had progressed in love. But yet, all these people called Pharisees were full of all this cognitive knowledge, all this information, and yet they had never progressed on the path because information alone will never lead to transformation. It just doesn't work that way. Love is the measure of a Christian's maturity. Jesus said it himself in John 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you know Greek and Hebrew, no, it's as if you have love for one another. Love is the maturity of a Christian, uh, uh, love is the measure of maturity for a Christian. But Paul does add, he says, I want you to grow in love with knowledge and discernment. He says, I want your love to be informed. Like, I do want you to know, but, but what's interesting about this is he doesn't tell us to know, know what. He's like, I want your love to grow in all knowledge. Knowledge of what? Wrong question. It's actually a knowledge of who. You see, Paul is an Old Testament expert. Paul knew, he was one of those Pharisees. He had memorized the Old Testament. And what he knew about the Old Testament is that it was summarized into two laws. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as you love yourself. Paul knew As you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you will love others. You'll grow in maturity. It is a love informed by knowledge. And you're like, wait, I thought he said love is the measure of maturity, not knowledge. Well, yeah, you do probably need to understand a little bit of Greek here, okay? The word knowledge here isn't information. It's not intellectual. It's not cognitive. It's the Greek word gnosko, which is an experiential love. It's an intimate love. What that means is when your kid is constantly disobeying you and you're hitting your knees at night, every night, praying for God's grace, praying for God's mercy, praying for God's activity in their life, and all of a sudden you start seeing that to fruition, you have just encountered the living God. And when you encounter him, you begin to know him. You go, he is faithful. He hears prayers. And you know him. You know what happens when you know him like that? You love him. Your love grows. Your love grows. And all of a sudden you're going to want to love other people. That's what happens. Paul wants our love to be informed by experiential relationship. But he says, with all discernment, let me give a quick word here about discernment. Uh, Discernment just means judgment, proper judgment, proper insight. Did y'all know that common sense today is just not common? Love is not base sentimentality. Love is not some feeling for God. Love is always evidenced in our obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Love is, I love you so much, Lord. I owe you so much. I'm so indebted to you. I want to do whatever you ask me to do. So when I'm faced with this ethical dilemma in my career, I want to follow you. Give me discernment to know what to do here. Let me evidence my love for you by my obedience. But we need discernment to know how to obey that. Does that make sense? So Paul's praying. I want your love to grow. And it grows from knowledge, but it also needs discernment. Church, nobody has ever gotten a greater vision and understanding and experience of God and become less loving. The bigger your God is in your mind and in your life, the more loving you'll become. But let me encourage you for a moment. If if you do not currently love the way that you desire, 
Or if you do not currently love the way that you know God is calling you to, did you know that that is not a sign of failure? It's not. It's not a sign that you're a terrible Christian. It's not a sign that you, you, you have failed. It's not a sign that you are unsaved. You know what it's a sign of? That you are on the road that ever goes on and on and on. It means that you're in process. It, it means that you haven't stepped into the lighted end. It means that God has begun a good work. It just means that there's still work to be done, which means that every ounce of good news you get and every ounce of bad news you get, every, every unexpected happiness and every unexpected piece of suffering, that everything in your life is going to be used in the sovereign hands of God to continue to move you on this process. Every day of your life is pregnant with this purpose. Every day of your life is full of God's divine activity of growing you more and more into the image of his son. And if you fail, welcome to the road. You're going to end to the completion with what kind of feet? Weary. Because every time you think you're making progress, boom. You just take two steps backwards, which just means, God, I'm, I'm just not done yet. You're not done with me. I'm not complete. I'm not perfect yet. What we're looking for, y'all, for Christians, what you need to look for in your own life is not perfection. You need to look for progression. You need to look that you're growing that you're in process, that you're on the road that ever goes on and on. Would you please accept that? And if you're new to church, please leave your judgment of us at the door. So many people say, well, I, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. They let me down. Duh, because I'm not done yet. I still have sin in my life that God's trying to root out of me. I mean, I'm dependent on his grace. We're all on this road together. And that you're here, welcome to the road. You have just made us just a little bit more imperfect, but we're going to journey together because we're all in process. I want you to accept this, church, and, and, and I know I'm going long, but give me a moment to encourage you because the failure to accept this has been the downfall of so many travelers. Eugene Peterson, a, a lifetime pastor and a spiritual mentor to me, wrote the following. Just, just be encouraged by his writing. He says, many people quit the church because they're impatient. They came to church because they wanted to give God a try. So they jump in enthusiastically, you know, or as Bilbo's song would say, with eager feet. But his quote goes on and says, but after six months, they couldn't see anything had changed. They still woke up depressed on Monday, still had spats with their spouses. Their kids had been to Sunday school every week, but still weren't behaving. Anybody experience here? He says, so they quit the church. They had supposed that the new life would come quickly, suddenly, like a rabbit appearing miraculously out of a magician's hat. But rarely in scripture do we find illustrations of mag magical change. The biblical models are mostly comparable to the growth of plants, to the growth of people. Slow, intricate, complex, yet sure. That is beautiful, yet sure. It's not magical, y'all. It's not microwavable. This is a marathon. God is working. He began it. He's going to complete it. But he's working like the way that children grow, right? Like my kids, I don't see them growing. Can we agree with that? You can't see your kids growing, but all of a sudden, one day, you're like, they've grown. It's the same thing in our spiritual lives. You don't see it every day. But six months from now, you'll look back and you'll go, I've progressed a little bit. I am less angry today than I was 15 years ago. Praise God for that. He began that work. He's seeing it to completion. Y'all, measure yourselves in your progression. This is a, it's not microwave. This is a marathon. So don't feel ashamed. Don't be condemned. Don't compare yourselves to others. Parents, as you are trying to disciple your children, 
Do not be ashamed. Do not be condemned. Don't be discouraged. Don't despair. They're on the journey. Your KJV devotion tonight is not going to be the only thing that changes them and transforms them. This is going to happen over time. So remain faithful. That's the calling of a Christian, remain faithful. I'm going to conclude by encouraging you with one more quote from Eugene Peterson. He says, the bottom step in a staircase is neither better nor worse than the top step. It's good in its own right. It's a way of getting upstairs. So what you are and who you are this morning is no occasion for despair or discouragement. It is the place that you are and the very place that God will begin completing the work of progress in your life. Isn't that beautiful? So if you're in a season where you know you are failing, you're not progressing on this road, you're just continuing to move backwards, there is hope, there is new grace, his mercy for you is new this morning. He will take you where you are and continue in the work of completing you into the conformity of Christ. It's a deep work of sanctification that we do with him. But as you climb those stairs, one day you're going to reach the top. Right? As we walk on this journey, one day we're going to reach the end. We're going to see with our eyes what we have seen by faith. We're going to step into that lighted end. And here's the end of Paul's prayer in verse 11. So that on that day, you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. That's Paul's prayer. That you would progress, that you would walk on this journey, and that one day when you stand before God, it would result in praise and honor and glory to Him. That's what we want. That you don't stand before him and go, look at, look at all the work I've done, God. What? My wife, tell him. Tell him how much I've grown. No, 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 it's not about us at all. It's going, God, you've done all of this in me. May it result in your praise and your glory and your honor. It all comes through him. It is all for him. So how I'd like for us to conclude today is by remembering his work that he began, by remembering his work that he's going to complete, and by remembering the work that he is doing in us today. And we're going to do that by taking communion. So if you're one of our volunteers who's serving communion, if you would, go ahead and please grab that. If um, you're a part of our band and want to come up, you guys can come on up. Um, Church communion um, is an opportunity that we take once a month to actually preach the gospel to one another. And and what that means is we get to preach the gospel to ourselves. We have convinced ourselves that we only need the gospel to start the journey. Well, I need the gospel, and then I was saved. And the gospel meaning that it is all him, it is his grace, it is his kindness, it is his mercy that I need. No, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, every month. So when we take communion, we take that bread and go, I need your body in my life to progress on this journey. Saying, I need your blood to cover me of my sins, not just the sins of my salvation, but the sins I made this morning on the way to church because my kids were doing that thing, you know? We need his forgiveness. We need this communion. So when we take communion with one another, it's preaching the gospel to each other. So as they pass out the elements, I want you to take the bread, take the cup, and remember what Christ has done for you. If you're not a Christian yet, I want to invite you to let these elements kind of pass you by. This is a a tradition that we do as the church, as people who have placed faith in Christ. But take a moment, consider what these elements mean, consider how much we need his grace today, and I'll come back up and lead us through taking it together.